Okay, all right. There we go. Yeah, in the house. Amen. God bless. Put your hands together for Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Uh, Thank you again for allowing me to come out and share and participate with what you all have been doing for the last four years. I pray that our time together over the next two days will truly be rich. I truly believe that God is doing something right now uh, in our culture as it relates to men and men's ministry across uh, the United States of America and across the world. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans uh, has his study out on Kingdom Man. A good friend of mine, Dr. Eric Mason, has his study out on Manhood Restored. And then a few good brothers uh, have a study out called the 33 series but right now I believe that God is doing something special in the heart of men across the country he's been doing it for a while so it's not just like it just got started but I believe that God is really trying to uh, show us who we are and who we are called to be in the society in which we live there are a lot of people saying a lot of things about men uh, those could be that men are working too hard and away from their families some men aren't working hard enough some men are dogs, just all kind of things that they're talking about men. But tonight I want to open up in this initial session to go through quite a few scriptures in the New Testament uh, to show you what God had to say about you. Because people can say things about you, but it really doesn't matter what other people say. One of the things that you must know is what does God actually have to say about your manhood. Uh, I live in a culture and in a society and in an ethnicity to where a lot of people are concerned about uh, African-American men and what African-American men are doing and what they're not doing and they have us on all kinds of statistics but I often tell guys uh, from our ethnic background man I'm not concerned about statistics I'm concerned about the scriptures because if I'm concerned about the scriptures the scriptures can give me my real identity and once I know my identity I know my responsibility and so I want to share tonight with you uh, my brothers in Christ and uh, with the Word of God and so if you have a Bible out or a device or however you're going to approach it uh, we're going to be in some scriptures I'm going to open up with 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 13 and pray and then we're going to be going through a New Testament portrait of what God had to say about manhood. Amen? And we'll end out and close in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13 but that's the verse that we'll start reading. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 13 the Apostle Paul writes Be on the alert Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to thank you right now in the name of Jesus for your goodness and your mercy towards us. Lord, we need you in this moment. Father God, we don't want to waste a single second. God, we need you to speak to us. God, you have allowed us to descend on this place. And for some men, they've come back year after year, God, to break away and to hear from you. And so, Lord, we need to hear from heaven. The Bible tells us that men preach the gospel by the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter tells us. And so, Holy Spirit, we're in need, God, to have you speak through us. We also need you, God, to open up our ears and open up our eyes, Father God, that we might understand the scriptures, that we might behold wonderful things in your law. And then, God, we don't want to be those who just simply hear the word and are deluded, but we want to be doers of the word and be blessed by what we do. And so, God, we pray that you would strengthen us by grace and grant us the ability to teach, hear, understand, and apply the word of God to our lives, that you might receive glory from the lives that we live. It is in the matchless, marvelous name of Jesus Christ that we pray these things. Amen and thank God. If you don't mind, turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. I want to walk through a portrait of manhood 
where God begins to outline for you and I in this New Testament what he begins to write through the Apostle Paul about what a man is designed to be. One of the things that will hurt anybody is when a person does not really know what their identity is and in specifically talking about men is that men can get shaped and driven into other things that define our manhood outside of the Word of God. So whether it's our hobbies, golfing, hunting, uh, fishing, whatever it is, we can get caught up in hobbies and we can be the best golfer that's never going to be on tour in the world. We can be the best fisherman that's never going to win a prize in the world and we can get caught up in all those things outside of what God has called us to be. We can chase women, we can chase drinking, there are so many other things that we can do. But when God begins to describe for you and I through the word of God, I think that tonight what we're going to see is the perfect picture of what God always wanted you to be. Now if you didn't have a father like people in some of my background didn't have a father in life, they never had their dad explain to them who they were designed to be. Show them and demonstrate for them who they were designed to be. But when you look in the book of 1 Kings chapter 2 verse 1 through 4, David explains exactly to his son Solomon, who's getting ready to take over the kingship, what it is that he is supposed to be. He's going to tell him, I want you to show yourself strong. Be a man of the book. Obey his commandments and his laws. And if you do these things, you will never lack a man on the throne of Israel. If you would obey God, obey his words, the things that have been written in the law of Moses about him, he said Solomon, you'll prove yourself to be a man in all that you do and you will never lack a man on the throne, 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4. Solomon had someone, his father, to demonstrate what it looked like to be a man, to lay out for him what it looked like to be a man. The only problem is, is that even from a good father, a man after God's own heart like David, is that David had all kind of mess ups in his background. But we still love David. David still got the grace of God on his life and his son Solomon. But what if, not David told you, what if God himself stopped by tonight and said, here's exactly who I've designed you to be. So tonight I want to share with you who God has designed you to be. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3, here's the first thing that God says to the Apostle Paul's literature about men. He says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and that the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. God designed Christ to be the head of a man and the man was to be the head of the woman. God designed Christ to be the head of the man and the man to be the head of a woman. Right here in 1 Corinthians 11, 3 it says, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. For a man to really begin to exercise what God has called him to do, he has to have an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is what the Bible says, the head of the church. Colossians 1:18. So now he says that Christ is our head, but we're the head of every woman. God has given us a responsibility to be the head of women in our society. Now, it's not a responsibility by which we dominate. It's a sign by which we are diligent leaders over women. Why? Because Colossians 1.18 says that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And Jesus Christ never dominated the church. He served the church. He diligently prepared the church. He invested in the church. He gave himself away, his life for the church. So we as men represent 
represent uh, leadership over uh, the women of our society and we need to be what God has called us to be. He said, man, I want you to lead. I want you to exercise headship. Now in the exercise of headship, it's not that you're going to dominate a woman, it's going to be that you diligently lead a woman. When you diligently lead a woman, then women and the society fall in line. Children fall in line. Women fall in line when man is designed to be head. If this was wrong, God would have created Eve first. But God doesn't create Eve first. God creates Adam first. And when God creates Adam first, I want you to see what God did for Adam. He gives him a God-given work. I want you to take care of the garden, till the garden. I want you to care for the garden. Then he gives him a God-given word. He says, son, uh, Adam, I want to make sure that you, uh, from any tree of the garden, you may freely eat. From this tree, you may not eat. He gives him a God-given word. After he gives him a God-given word, he gives him a God-given wife. He doesn't give him a wife until he's given him a work, until he's given him a word. Why? Because man needs to manage three things. Man needs to juggle the balls of the work that God has called him to, to demonstrate that we are one who exercise power and dominion in the authority that God has given us. But also obedience to the word of God. So that we don't fumble handling the word of God and then fumble managing our wives. If a man can manage work, word, then he can handle a wife. But if a man can't manage work and a man can't manage the word of God, he can't manage a woman. And so God calls Adam to these things. And the very first thing that's going to happen is Adam who is the head of the woman all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3 falls out of line by simply not teaching his word, the word of God well enough to his wife to where his wife eats of the tree. As she eats of the tree, Adam's right there with her. And Adam eats of the tree also. And the Bible says that Adam sinned, Eve was deceived. Why does the Bible say that Adam sinned but yet Eve was deceived? Well, if you talk to the devil, the Bible says in Revelation 12, 9 that the devil's the deceiver of the whole world. So if you talk to the devil, you're going to get deceived. But the reason why he says Adam sinned is because Adam I gave you a direct word to you. I talked to you as a man, as the head, as the leader of your wife and you didn't teach your wife properly. So God calls us to be the head of a woman. Now he says and God is the head of Christ. So God begins to show us that there is a natural order that he has set up, that he has arranged by which we are supposed to operate. So that means that when it comes to our homes when it comes to our families, we can't let the women run the show. Now please understand that I'm not female bashing. I'm simply saying we have to sit in the role that God has called us to be. Watch this picture that God has painted of you and I. God has entrusted you with this word by saying you are to be the head of a woman. Now when you think about that, that word, and then the Bible says in Colossians 1, Christ is the head of the church. Do you now see the picture? That Christ is the perfect leader for the church. Christ is the perfect authority for the church. God has designed you and I according to his original design. Not with our sinful ways to take on headship, leadership of the woman. To where the woman could see that this man is submitted to Christ. And the reason why I follow him is because he's following the head of the church. The reason why our wives and women ought to be following us is because they see that we're first submitted to God. And when we're submitted to 
God, then we lead properly. If you're submitted to God, you don't lead inaccurately. Now check this out. The Bible talks about this word submerge. Uh, the word to be submitted to. It's a militaristic term. It means to be submerged under. Now listen, uh, when you take a submarine, same word, and you put a submarine underwater, that submarine can go far, it can go fast, and it can go deep. You take that same submarine and you put it on land, and it's not under the proper authority of the water. It moves and goes nowhere. When a man is submerged under the leadership of Jesus Christ, that man can go far, that man can go fast, that man can go deep, and God can take that man places that that man could have not gone on his own. But when man is not under the headship of Christ, and he stands out by himself, he goes nowhere. And so he says, I need you first of all men to recognize that Jesus Christ is your head. And when you recognize that Jesus Christ is your head, then you can lead properly as you know him intimately and see how Christ gave his life away for the church and how you and I are designed to give our lives away for our families. Now that's 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, but walk with me to Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, he's going to say, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now notice this. Here goes a single man like Adam and the very first thing that God does is he takes that man and he allows him to have a wife. When he allows him to have a wife, he then says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. In my family, my grandfather was married to my grandmother 53 years. My uncle's wife just died in January. They were married 58 years. My other uncle's wife, before he died, they were married 53 years. My dad and his, and, and his, his wife, my mom, have been married 56 years. So in my family, all I know is long marriage. That's all I know. He doesn't say, Blake, love your wife like Big Daddy did. That's my grandfather. He doesn't say, love him like Uncle E.W. did. He didn't say, love him like Uncle Willie did. He not, nor does he say, love him like your dad did. Because as good of men as they are, they're not Christ. He says, so when you start loving your wife, the measuring rod of loving your wife is not looking at another brother in the church who doesn't lead his wife in prayer. Not another brother in the church who doesn't bring his children to school, to, to, to Bible study. No, he wants you to look at Jesus Christ and love your wives like Christ loved the church. The only way I can know how to love my wife like Christ loved the church is if I'm intimately acquainted with the Christ of the Gospels. When I see the way Jesus Christ served the church, uh, the, the pre-church in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and see how Christ lived his life, giving his life away, it begins to set the standard for how I love my wife. The, the, the measuring rod is no, no uncle. The measuring rod is not my father. The measuring rod is not my grandfather. The measuring rod is not a man in here. The measuring rod that God is going to look at me and say how did you love your wife Blake I loved them better than he did no that's not the standard the standard of loving our wives is loving your wife like Jesus Christ loved the church do you know how much Jesus Christ loved the church he loved the church so much that the Bible says he gave himself up for the church offered himself as a fragrant aroma oftentimes people come to Ephesians 5 verse 25 and they read it separate from the whole chapter go back with me to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 2 They'll read Ephesians 5 verse 25 separate from the chapter and they'll just start talking about marriage. But he says that he gave himself up. Let's go to verse 2. Verse, we'll start at verse 1. Verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. See, 
Ephesians 5.2 precedes Ephesians 5.25. He says Christ gave himself up for the church and sacrificed himself and made himself an offering. When you and I are married to our wives, do we live with our wives with a more Western culture mindset or a biblical mindset? Are we sacrificing ourselves and our lives for our wives like Christ did for the church? Or have we been more informed by Western culture that our wife is designed to do this, but we don't know what we're designed to do? When he says, husband, love your wife like Christ loved the church, he then says, wash your wife in the water of the word. So now you have a responsibility to wash your wife in the word of God. So if you get married, God is going to allow you to be the lead instructor of your wife. What the pastor says complements what you've already taught your wife at the house. So if I don't know the word of God as an individual man, I'm talking about the picture that God painted. Your wife ought to not become church. Preach it, pastor. Now I know that y'all church don't yell like that. I understand. But in the black church, they hollering, preach it, pastor. But in case y'all do, amen. But she should be saying, my husband said that. What a woman ought to be saying when pastor's preaching is there ought to be confirmation in her mind. That's what my husband taught me. When you wash your wife in the water of the word, let me break it down like this. Here's what I teach the church at Crossover. I tell them there are two ways to wash your wife in the water of the word. It's called a general washing and a specific washing. A general washing is when you're reading the book of Philippians with your wife. Hey baby, this month, let's spend our time reading Philippians. I'll read chapter 1 in the morning, you read chapter 1. Tonight when we get home and put the kids down, let's holler about it. Let's see what's going on in Philippians chapter 1. And you just kind of do that for the whole month. You go through Philippians. So you're going through the word in a general way together in the word of God just washing each other and spending time in the word of God but then here's a specific washing you hear your wife on her cell phone gossiping specific washing means baby you need to quit that gossiping baby you need to be opening up your mouth for the gospel and quit gossiping now here's the reason why men don't like that part men don't like to give that specific word because men like the softness of the wife and if you give her a specific word about gossiping or, you know, being rude, then you might not get to experience the softness this month. Because she might hold something against you. But God has still required you to wash your wife in the water of the world. Now watch this. You never wash anything that's not dirty. Did you hear what I just said? You never wash anything that's not dirty. So what God has given us a responsibility with our wives is to see areas of her life to where she might be out of line and then you and I take the word of God and apply it to her life. But if I only apply specific washings to her with no general washings, she thinks I'm beating her down with the Bible. But if I'm already generally washing her, she can trust that I'm a man who's in communion with God by the word of God and in prayer with her. And so when I come and share an area with her, and it could not just be gossiping, it could be fear. It could be that your wife is living in fear in an area where she ought to be living in faith. And because God has given her a spiritual gift that she's not using because she's not walking in faith in that area. She's walking in fear. You and I got to come in and specifically and say, baby, God didn't give you a spirit of fear. God gave you a sound mind and discipline and love and so you encourage your wife to walk in faith that's a specific word it allows a man to exercise authority with his wife dealing with her responsibility what has God called you to do so when I'm washing my wife in the word he says so that you might present her in all her glory in essence to not wash your wife in the water of the word is to allow your wife to walk around spiritually dirty now 
we're going to be at the camp this weekend and I used to be a youth pastor and do youth camps. And so in youth camps, the number one thing that I would teach them before I open up the Bible is take a bath. I don't want to be around a bunch of 150 teenagers and y'all are funky. Y'all just played basketball outside. You just ran and did the, you know, you know, all these rides outside and you stink. You smell bad. Take a bath. What God is saying is, is that if your wife has a pungent aroma that's not fresh spiritually, it's because we haven't washed them in the water of the word. So if there's anything that's not right in the, wife, in the area of my life, God has given me authority in her life to share the word of God with her. Now, notice this. So he says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. So God says, here it is, uh, I want, I've designed man to love his wife as Christ loved the church. He's given you and I responsibility over her life. So not only are we responsible for the woman and all of society, but we're now responsible for individually for the wives that we lead. Now because we like the softness, guess what happens? We end up with children. So go to the next chapter, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. <laughs> Go to Ephesians 6 verse 4. Now notice this. In Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4, the Bible says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. It comes off the backdrop of Ephesians 6, 1-3. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment is a promise, so that it may be well with you, that they may live long on the earth. But then he comes, and notice what he says. Fathers, comma, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. God designed the father to be the lead instructor of his children in the word of God. God designed you as a man to be the lead instructor of your child in the word of God. Now notice all this responsibility with the word of God. That if I don't know the word of God as a man, I cannot properly execute his plays. Now, Let's not talk about the, the, the more recent Peyton Manning. Let's talk about the younger Peyton Manning. Y'all know what I liked about Peyton Manning when he played ball in Indianapolis in his early days of Denver before he got kind of old and everything was breaking down and he barely made it through the Super Bowl. You know, but, but here's the deal. Is it Peyton, why you love Peyton, why you like Peyton is because every time Peyton came under center, he'd look at the defense and Peyton started doing all this kind of jazz and, you know, and, you know, and, and Peyton's doing all that. And what was Peyton doing? Peyton knew the playbook so well. That when he saw the defense set up against him, he realized what the offense needed to do. And as a result, he called an audible. He called an audible because he knew his book so well. If Peyton doesn't know his book well, Peyton can't call the audible. So now if I don't call my audible, I give you the ball and the defender crushes you. But I can solve this problem by knowing my book. And here's the deal. God has given us a book by which we're to call audibles when we see danger coming in on our family. But if I don't know the book, I can't call the play. I don't I don't want to just applaud Peyton. I want to applaud you. I want to see some stuff coming at your family and you know how to pull the word of God out and say, I'm going to pray this. I want, to, I, I want your wife to be worrying about a situation and I want you to tell your wife, be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. And let's get down on our knees right now and let's pray. I want you to lead your children in the word of God. Now, I'm not one of those guys that say, I don't believe in youth pastors. I don't believe in children pastors. I don't, I'm not one of those guys. I believe in children pastors, youth pastors, but I also believe this. I believe that while I was a youth pastor, I was a vitamin supplement. 
The main course meal is mom and dad. I get your children on Wednesdays for an hour and a half. I get your children on Sundays for about an hour and a half. I can't do in two and a half hours what they'd spend time with you for 60 hours in your home and then another 60 hours out at school and activities. That's your job. And so I've got to take seriously if your church has small groups, if your church has Bible study, when the word of God is being opened up, I better be learning the playbook. Can I tell you something? Do you realize that 58% of players that get drafted to the NFL that get cut don't get cut because of the lack of physical ability? You know why they get cut? Because they can't learn the playbook. And so you see these players that have gone and played college ball running four fives, uh, six two, two seventy five, six seven. You know, I mean, like like Ed Two Tall Jones back in the day. Now you know, y'all know everybody's on steroids because Ed Two Tall Jones was like six nine back in the day. Some of y'all know that name. Some of y'all don't. Harvey Martin. We got wide receivers that are Ed Two Tall Jones nowadays running four twos. But you know why guys are getting cut? They're getting cut because they can't learn the playbook. Why did you not have a great career in the NFL? I couldn't learn the playbook. Why is your family struggling? I didn't learn the playbook. I got to make sure that if I'm a man, I know the plays. I got to know the plays. Why? Because God has called you and I as men to be lead instructors of our children in the household. When you check out verse 4, look at it real quick. I don't have to give you any Greek or anything like that. It's pretty clear. Fathers, comma. Do y'all see mothers? Don't ever forsake your responsibility to be the lead teacher in the home of your children and say that's women's work. Don't feel like your job is to work hard and provide financially but not to lead and instruct spiritually. Don't miss what God has painted the picture for you to be. God has painted a picture for you and I to lead our children. And when they hear our voice and see the way we live our lives, then they follow us. But that's not all that God has designed for men. Walk with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. Paul is writing to his young protege in the ministry. And he's writing Timothy, and it's in this letter where Paul says, this is how the church ought to conduct itself. But in 1 Timothy 2.8, check this out. He says, therefore, I want the men in every place to pray. I want the men in every place to pray. Now watch this. Go back to verse 1. First of all, then I urge that in treaties and prayers and petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men. In verse 1, in the Greek language, that word all men is the word anthropos. It's mankind in general. Go down to verse 8 one more time. Therefore, I want in, uh, the men in every place is the word andros. It means male. Plain and simple. It means male. You and I in the room right now. He says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. God designed men to lead the church in unified prayer. God designed men, you know, b back in the 50s, back in the 60s, back in the 70s, back in the 80s, because, you know, we got new school church in 2016. We got new school church. But back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, folk used to pray. They had a thing called prayer meeting. It, would, it didn't even have a sexy name. Prayer meeting. We're coming to prayer meeting. Now at prayer meeting you see 95 grandma, old women walking up to prayer meeting. No men. 
Why? Because the man had not read what God had called him to do. See, he said, I want men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. I want men to be the lead people who get down on their knees and say, God, you're calling me based on 1 Corinthians 11.3 to lead the society of women. God, in Ephesians, you're telling me to lead my wife. God, in Ephesians 6, you're telling me to lead my children. God, I can't do that unless you lead me. So God, I'm calling on you in dependence because I need you to power me to do all that you've called me to do. So now I'm not doing this on my own. I'm doing this based on I've lifted holy hands without wrath. God, when I lift my hands, I'm saying I'm dependent on you. I'm needy on you. God, I, I can't do what you've called me to do unless you come through and supply the need. But here's the deal. Back in old times in the Bible, there was a war going on. And every time Moses' hands were lifted up to God, they won the war. Every time Moses' hands came down, they lost the war. And the men came around Moses and they picked his hands up and they, they put his hands up. And in other words, they were calling, God, we need you in this war. Brothers, we need God so bad right now, it doesn't make sense. And he said, I'm calling men in every place to pray. And I want you to lift holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now watch this. What does it mean, lead it in unified prayer? I don't want you being men of competition. See, men have been raised on competition. Who's faster? Who can jump higher? Who can shoot the ball better? Who can shoot his skeet faster? You know, I, I mean, you know, all, all, I, I got to give y'all some of y'all stuff, you know. Uh, <laughs> y'all caught that, amen. So, 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 so here's the deal. So when you, we, we live in competition. And God said, no, 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 I want men to live in collaboration. I want you to lift holy hands without wrath and dissension saying, brother, if, if God has put all this on me, he's also put it all on you. So let's pray together. And let, let's not compete with each other. Let's come together and pray and ask God, God, here's what my family needs. God, here's what my wife needs. God, here's what my community needs. And let's come together and pray and let's call on God and let's watch God do something. In the book of Genesis chapter 4, the Bible says this one unique thing. And men began to call on the name of the Lord. The Bible says in Genesis chapter 4, men began to call, God, we cannot do what you've called us to do unless you empower us to do it. So prayer is that fuel of power that God gives us. I was reading earlier on the way down here where Jesus in Mark chapter 1 is performing all these miracles. He's casting out a demon in Mark chapter 1. Uh, then he goes down to Peter's house to get some chicken after he cast out the demon and preached down there. And, and after he got some fried chicken, uh, you know, uh, Peter's mama's uh, mother-in-law is sick and so he heals her. Now everybody else comes around and he heals them. And, and the next thing the Bible says is he goes out to pray. He gets by himself to pray. Why? Because Jesus realizes with the day I just had and all the power that just came out of me, I got to get down and get refueled through prayer. Prayerlessness is us living like functional atheists. Prayerlessness is us living like functional atheists. I don't believe that God is out there, so I'm not going to ask him anything, and I'm going to manage everything on my own. God calls men in every place to lift holy hands without wrath and dissension. Come together, brothers, and let's pray on all that God has called us to do. Now, he moves on from 1 Timothy chapter 2 into chapter 3, and he says this. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, 
It says in verse 1, It is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It is a fine work he desires to do. Now then he goes on and he talks in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7 about uh, the, the characteristics of an elder in a church. Now regardless of your church government, he talks about the elder and his characteristics. The type of man he should be. He says that if a man aspires to the office of overseer or elder in the church, it's a fine thing he desires to do. God has designed you and I as men, males, to be in position to have the type of character that the rest of the church could depend on our leadership. The rest of the church could depend on our feeding them, our caring for them, our leading them, our discipling them. The rest of the church can say, these men are lead servants. Now watch this. We make this mistake even if you have elders. Elder board. We ain't talking about no elder board. We're talking about elder servants. We're talking about men who serve the church, men who are there for the church, and they're not doing it for financial reasons, not under compulsion, because they want to live their life as an example like Jesus Christ did. I tell the people in our church, I say, guys, look here. Uh, the elder position, uh, I, I want to show you what it is, and I put a doormat down. What do you do on a doormat? You come in, and you wipe your feet off on it, and it gets all dirty, and then you walk into the house. What the elder is really designed to do is for you to come and put all your problems on them, and then you walk off. And the elder's got to manage that, shake that off, and handle your dirt and your mess and all that, and keep leading you and growing you into Christ. It's not some position that you aspire to as a position. It is a posture of service that God has called us to, to lead brothers and sisters because we want to love God like that. Now, here's the deal. You may never desire the position. You may never aspire the position, but you ought to have character like the position. You ought to have character like this position. You, every man in the church ought to be qualified characteristically to be an elder. In other words, elder ought not be up here and all the other brothers are down here. It ought to just be a matter of who do we choose from. Why? Because if we're all being transformed into the image of Christ, we would all have Christ-like character. Am I right? Amen. So if we all have Christ-like character, every brother ought to be aspiring to the office of elder. Now, in college, I pledged a fraternity. And when I pledged this fraternity in college, here was, here was one of our goals. We said, we want, we want to train every brother like he could be the president. Every brother in our chapter, we want to train him like he could be the president. Now, we have like 40 guys in the chapter, but since we weren't going to be in college for 40 years, that means ain't everybody going to be the president. <laughs> I hope you weren't in college 40 years. Amen. Now, so, but we trained everybody like they were going to be the president. Only a few would reach the office, but everybody was ready and prepared if they got called on. We ought to be the exact same way when it comes to the church. I may not aspire, I may not desire, but if a fraternity can train men in foolishness to be ready, the church of the living God ought to train men to be ready to be called on. Y'all, here's the real, the real deal. If God had a chance to say, I need you, come off the bench, are you ready? Now, I don't know about you, but I played ball growing up. My dad was a college basketball coach. I never liked to sit on the bench. I never liked to sit on the bench because the girls don't root for dudes on the bench. <laughs> I, I want to start. I want to be the captain. I'm going to work hard in offseason. I'm going to do what I got to do to start. So here's the deal. Y'all, I, I, I hate when coach would take me out the game and say, rest a little while. And then he'd look down the bench, pass me, and choose somebody else. 
you, you come in. I don't want God to have your assignment ready, but you're not ready to play ball, and he has to look past you and reach to somebody else. Every single one of us ought to be prepared to be an elder in the church, character-wise. I'm not saying that you're going to be in a position character-wise. Now notice this. The next thing he says is I need men to be deacons in the church. 1 Timothy 3, 8-13. God designed men to serve the church as deacons. Now these men are to be wise men. These men are to be men solid in the faith. These men are to be men sound in the faith. These are all responsibilities that God has given you and I laid them out before us that when the church calls on a man who can serve and be in position and take care of the things that are going on in the church here's a man he's a servant and when that man is a servant it reminds you of that man's like Jesus for the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and give his life away as a ransom for many see Man is designed to be a servant like Jesus Christ. I live to serve you. I live to give my life away. And so as a result, when God sets up the character of a deacon, he's saying, you ought to be a man that everybody can call on. Ready to serve, ready to meet the needs, ready to be, to be entrusted with the responsibilities. That's what God's called us to. Now look at so far what we're dealing with. God's called us to be the head of every woman in the society. God has called us to be the head of the wife. This is the picture that he's painting. God has called us to be the lead instructors and when he calls us to do all these things it's just like Christ be, be men of prayer just like Christ was be an elder just like Christ be a servant just like Christ in other words he's calling you to Christ likeness God is saying I've designed every single one of you to be God lookalikes on the face of the earth and if anybody's going to see Jesus they're going to see Jesus in you now last thing 2 Timothy 2 1 and 2 in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Notice what Paul says, you therefore, my son. Timothy is not his biological son. Timothy is his spiritual son. His dad was a non-believer in Acts 16. But God puts Paul in Timothy's life to do what his daddy couldn't do. Timothy got raised by a grandmother and a mother who were sound in faith. Jewish women who had become Christians and were converted Christians, but, they were, but, but, but the Jewish woman had married a non-believer, a Gentile, a Greek. And she was married to a non-believer that does not know Jesus at all. And so God supplements the process by putting Paul in his life. Now, notice this, the Bible would say, grandfathers or fathers raise your sons and your grandsons. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Fathers raise your sons and your grandsons. In other words, there's a grandfather, a father, all a part of raising up a son. A father, a grandfather, raise a son. Three generations of male witness in the home. But because these Jewish women, ethnically, but Christians by conversion, know what the Old Testament scriptures do, what they do is they say, as a good grandmother and as a good mama, we're going to supplement the process and still raise this boy sound in the faith. Timothy will still become a believer, but now what God does is God supplements his male growth process by putting Paul in his life. Which means that there's a connection among men. That there's some men out here that need spiritual fathers, spiritual mentors to say, man, I might not have had that type of leadership in my life, but brother, you're 55, you're 65, you're 70, and you've walked with God a long time. Could you mentor me? 
Y'all, I'm really sick of cool church. Let me explain cool church. Everybody in the church is three years old and think that they're elder in the church. Let me make it a little bit more plain. All your church is 25. That ain't cool. We need some older men, like Titus chapter 2 tells us, in the church. And if I don't have a legitimate father in my life, it's time to quit crying about that dad not being there. It's time to go find a godly man and say, would you mentor me? Will you walk with me the same way Paul walked with Timothy? And you show me things. And guess who Paul leaves the hands of the church in? Paul leaves. You, you, you better hear this. Paul leaves the hands of the church into a young man whose daddy was a non-believer or spiritually totally unuseful to him. Because Paul had spent time developing him as his son in the church. Which means men have to have intergenerational connections in the church. Intergenerational connections in the church to where I'm not just hanging with all men 55 and I'm not just hanging with all dudes 25. But I don't want to hang with the 55 year old dude. He walked too slow. No, no, no. You better go get you some wisdom. You better go find out how have you made it? How have you walked through? How has God allowed you and your wife to make it 37 years? You, you better go find out something. Why? Because you may not have any history of successful marriage in your life. You better go find out somebody who did. Watch what Paul tells him. 2 Timothy 2. You therefore my son be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Notice this. Be strong in the grace. Your strength is not found in your weightlifting. Your strength is not found in your jumper. Your strength is not found in your athletic ability. Your strength is not found in your sexual conquest. Your strength is found in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. He says be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Know about the undeserved favor that Christ has poured out on your life. These things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Here's what I need you to do Timothy. Timothy I've taught you. I've developed you. And the things that you heard from me in the presence of faithful witnesses entrust these to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Timothy I need you to take the next generation and give them what I gave you. Paul is one downing ministry. He's the his peer-to-peer -peer relationships are Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas. But his peer-to-pupil relationships are Paul and Timothy, Paul and Titus, and even let's just say John Mark down the road. Paul always had someone younger that he was investing in. Why? Because he knows I'm going to check up out of here. And when I check up out of here, I want to know that the faith is in good shape. I want to know that the faith, I, I want to know that there's still some strong men who are faithful men. Did you catch the word? Faithful men. Entrust these things to faithful men who will teach others also. You're not just spending time wasting time with people. I'm investing with you in our relationship expecting a return on the investment. And here's the return on the investment. It's not that you got a chance to hang out with me because watch this. Here's a big deal that, that we got to be very careful of in the church. It's a lot of dudes lonely. There's a lot of dudes that need attention. And they'll hang out with you, pastor, and they'll hang out with you, mentor, just to have somebody to talk to. I ain't hanging out with you for that reason. I'm hanging out with you so because of somebody hung out with me and showed me Jesus. And now I got to hang out with you so that you can go show somebody else Jesus. I'm expecting a return on the investment. I want you to get faithful men who will teach others also. Now watch this. We love the word faithful. Why? Because the Bible tells us that God is faithful. Even when we are faithless, us, 
He is faithful because he cannot deny himself. And then God says, faithful men. God is literally saying, I want some men just like me. I want some men who have been developed just like me who can be faithful in passing the faith of Jesus Christ down to generations to come. As God begins to lay out this portrait of biblical manhood through the New Testament, he's showing you, here's all that I've called you to be. If you just mastered these scriptures, there couldn't be anybody to check you. Let me see, let, let me see what I make that plain. Right now, in this little world called basketball, it's hard for dudes to check Stephon Curry. Because Steph Curry can come past half court, just fire it up, it's going in there. It used to be hard for dudes to check LeBron. You know, big old mean Joe Green at the point guard. Some of y'all will catch that about five years from now. <laughs> Six, eight, 275. Carl Malone at the point guard. I mean, it doesn't make no sense. Hard to check him. When you get men with massive abilities, unique abilities, you say, man, who can handle that man? But do you realize that every single one of us, based on the scriptures just described, have the massive abilities that God just described? People ought to be saying, what kind of men are these being raised up in these churches? What kind of powerful men are these that are changing the communities? What kind of powerful men are these that are going in and starting up after school programs for boys that don't have fathers? What kind of men are these that are coming out of our churches, not just hearing good information, but are being transformed and passing the faith down? From generation to generation, will your legacy be at your funeral young men come around as you're lying down in the ground and saying he discipled me he trained me I wouldn't be who I was today who I am today if it had not been for this man my wife is experiencing the benefits of this man my who I am today is because this man invested in me. The Bible says be strong in the grace that's found in Christ Jesus. And all that I've taught you in the presence of many witnesses entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 13. In 1 Corinthians 16, 1 Corinthians 16 verse 13 where we started, Paul said, be on alert. Be on alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Be on alert. Recognize that you need to keep your eyes open. I was playing high school football. My mom transferred me to a school in Austin called Austin High. I lived in the area of Austin where there was Austin LBJ. All my friends lived there and we all were supposed to play ball at LBJ. My mom knows me. She said, Blake, you don't go to school to study. You go to school to socialize. So you're going to go across the city to Austin High and you're going to go over there with the predominantly white guys and you're going to study over there. Because if I let you hang over here with the brothers, you ain't going to graduate. And my kid's going to graduate. So you go, I'm transferring you way over there. So I transferred way on the other side of town and I finally got the chance to play football against my boys that I played with in Little League with. And we were running, they were running a play called this option. They faked the ball here. Quarterback came down the line and he took it and I'm running on the side like this trying to see if I can get the ball and he takes the ball. And all of a sudden in the middle of this football game that's going on, this war that's going on and I'm playing against people that I played ball against in Little League and, and growing up. So I don't get the ball so all of a sudden I just kind of jogging like this. But you know whenever you run an option 
There's always somebody that's designed to catch the guy that's supposed to get the ball. <laughs> Number 33, by the name of Danny Mitchell, we played Little League together. He was alert. I wasn't alert. Danny Mitchell came and knocked my helmet off. <laughs> Bam! I didn't have a ball. All I saw was stars. But in the middle of a war, I became non-alert. In the middle of the war, I just got casual. I just got locked. I, I just got lax. And I got my helmet knocked off, and all I could see was stars. Now, you know what the worst thing about it was? Is we got to watch film. <laughs> what were you doing, son? Coach, I got knocked out. Coach, that's what I was doing. But what it was, was just for a moment, I lost being alert and got casual and got knocked out the game. When you and I don't think that what has just been shared by God through these scriptures about you is serious, it means you ain't alert. He says, be on alert. Stand firm. Stand firm in what? In the faith. In the faith that's found in Jesus Christ. That my life depends on trusting that Jesus Christ is who he said he is and will do what he said he would do. And just a few minutes ago, we sang about the resurrection. And I thought about it as we sang about the resurrection just a few minutes ago. I said, I may never meet these brothers ever again. But I'll be with you in heaven for a long time. Because I'm going to stand firm in this faith. And he says, be strong, act like men. Be strong, act like men. And in essence, all that we've just described in all of these scriptures in the New Testament is what it literally means to act like a man. He said, whatever you do, do it in love. No greater love than a man have than this. And he would lay down his life for his friend. But God demonstrated his own love towards us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, in other words, everything that you and I ought to do ought to be motivated by love. The way I lead a woman in this society ought to be motivated by love. The way that I lead my wife in my home ought to be motivated by love. The way I lead my child in the word of God ought to be motivated by love. The way I call on God with my brothers ought to be motivated by love. The way I serve God as an elder in church ought to be motivated by love. The way I serve God as a deacon ought to be motivated by love. The way I invest in the next generation ought to be motivated by love. Why? Act like men, be strong, and do everything that you do in love. Brothers, God has called us to represent Jesus. Erase the picture that society is writing about you and the story that they're telling. And you just commit yourself to these scriptures and nobody will be able to check you. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for tonight. Lord, I pray that you would draw a picture from the word of God of who you've called us to be. And Lord, we ask God that you would raise up in this building, in this place right now, men in their 50s, men in their 60s, who would mentor younger men. Father God, we also pray, Father God, that men in their 40s, 30s, and 20s, Father God, would seek you diligently. We ask, God, that you would unify us in prayer. God, that we would call on your name for these great responsibilities that you've called us to, <clears throat> the identity that you've given us. Because, Lord, without calling on you, we will not be able to effectively do what we do. Lord, you told us that men in every, in every place ought to lift holy hands without wrath and dissension. Father God, calling on your name. And so, Lord, I pray, God, that we as men would begin to say, Father, I saw in the word of God. I cannot deny that. I cannot deny your word. That's the beautiful picture that you portrayed me and how you designed me to be. And I want to be what you've called me to be. I've seen enough of what the society has, but now I just saw the scriptures. The Bible tells us that the grass withers, 
The flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. And so, God, I pray that this word would stand forever in the lives of these men. They would fall on fertile soil and that you'd bear fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and thank God. Amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship?